Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Um, all right. Welcome everybody to Mental Status. My name is Meg. I am super excited for today's show. I think we are going to have a lot of good information for folks to take in and digest um, from what my my special guest is talking about. So I want to let my guests introduce themselves. So special guest, who are you? Where are you? And how are you feeling today? Hey Meg, well I'm so uh, excited to be here. Um, my name is Emily Hill. I am a licensed um, clinical social worker, currently residing on the lands of the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi, Potawatomi people. Um, it's also known as East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I know we're like Midwest buddies, so mm-hmm. very cool to meet another mm-hmm. therapist from the Midwest. Um, I currently own my own uh, solo private practice uh, in East Lansing. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now I am a full-time therapist, but I have worked in many other roles in the past uh, that have really informed um, you know, how I think about my work as a therapist and how I think about it in conjunction with the systems around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a really good lead into, um, I think one of the big things that we wanted to talk about today is being a therapist in these larger systems and how that can, um, how that can create an impact burnout. So maybe you can just get us started talking about that lovely, lovely big subject. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm going to just start with a really bold take here, um, which I actually think burnout is inevitable under our current systems. Um, I think uh, I've had a lot of experiences with it being framed as sort of an individualized, like, what self-care are you doing to, you know, stop yourself from getting burnt out or, you know, what measures do you need to take or do you need to be better at in your work-life balance so this doesn't happen? And I actually think those are really like misleading and unfair questions, uh, Mm -hmm. especially to therapists, um, because under our current system, burnout is pretty inevitable. And when we frame it as that sort of willpower or that moral failing, I think we are really shaming people in a way that's highly unnecessary and just, you know, continues to produce um, a lot of shame within a lot of really you know, great therapists that are doing the best they can, despite these sort of enormous um, systemic problems that we have that like lead people into burnout. Um, So that is, you know, I'm just starting us off with a real hot take and we're just going to go for it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we're pretty well in line in that, that way of thinking. Um, And speaking for myself and and maybe for a lot of other folks out there, like it can be relieving and validating and also a little horrifying to come to that realization that 
burnout is likely inevitable for the majority of folks who work in this field because of the field and the system itself. So like we come into this work because like we want to help folks not feel this way. Like we want to help them get out of systems of oppression or learn how to, I don't know, survive it, I suppose. And yet we become inserted into one of those systems that has that top-down pressure that just like squeezes the life out of so many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a belief that a lot, if not the majority of people who are coming in to work as mental health providers, like we're not doing it because we think it's a pathway to become very wealthy or anything. Like almost all of us, if not all of us come in because we are these sort of like really well-meaning benevolent people who see gaps, who really want to help people mm-hmm. who want to provide comfort for people. And so I think sometimes, uh, that really becomes insidious in, in a really sort of, uh, spectacular way within the, the system of the, the mental health industrial complex. And, mm-hmm. you know, despite sort of our best attempts to be, uh, people who are sort of understanding and want to go the extra mile to help our clients, you know, sometimes like that really gets taken advantage of. <laughs> within our current systems. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I don't know, like, I feel very, um, you know, like, I think it's largely a really wonderful thing that, that mental health providers care and that we would go the extra mile. I also think that's not great for our our own well-being and mental health. And we don't have a system that doesn't sort of exploit that currently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you speak about that most of us come into this field because we genuinely want to make a positive impact and help folks. And, um, at this point, it it kind of feels like no secret that a lot of the organizations and systems that are based on productivity will capitalize on that desire and that, um, that passion for helping other people. And I mean, here, I guess maybe a hot take. I don't know. I don't feel like it's a hot take, but maybe, but it seems like they, um, they guilt us into doing more because of that, that passion and drive to help. Like, well, you, you should feel fulfilled just by helping people. That's, that's the best part of the job. It's like, yeah. And Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I know you've, um, I've listened to a few episodes before, so I know you've had guests before that have had, um, community mental health backgrounds. Um, and that is also where I started my career right after, um, graduate school. Um, I had like a very, uh, I guess you could call it like classic CMH burnout story. Um, but actually not for the reasons I think that one would think. So the things that we hear about CMH, um, sort of the things that you just spoke about that, idea of like, you know, management, maybe exploiting, you know, being fresh out of grad school, really wanting to help this being like someone's first job out of graduate school, likely pre-licensed um, mm-hmm. at that case. Um, so yeah, all those things, um, all those things were in play in my CMH experience. Um, I was actually lucky to work in a role where um, it was kind of like a new role at the time. I was a school-based therapist, so it wasn't like outpatient it was at an office. It wasn't like home base. It was kind of like I was parked at a school, uh, and had an office there and was able to see kids during the school day there. Um, and it was a new position at the time. I know that these are like old hat positions now, like they're, they're so common. Um, but I was new at the time. So people didn't really know what the expectations were for like productivity. So we actually got kind of a, a free pass on like, 
like like meeting units and struggling to build up caseloads because no one really knew what it was supposed to look like. Um, But the reason uh, that experience was just so why I ended up burning out of that was more because I think of what was expected of me um, given like my specific social identity positioning. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is um, so I, um, I know the listeners can't see us. Uh, so I'll describe what I look like. Um, so I, um, I am, uh, of Korean descent. Um, uh, so I look like, you know, an East Asian person I'm feminine presenting. Um, at that time when I was working in CMH, uh, I was really feminine presenting. Um, I'm kind of, I have kind of a small body. I'm like, you know, uh, five foot three inches, I think. Um, so I'm kind of on the smaller side. I kind of just like match up kind of with, um, with like a certain stereotype. I think that people have like East Asian women. Um, and so I think one of the things that was really hard for me in CMH was obviously there are a lot of white therapists because you know, white people are the majority in the United States right now. Um, there are also a lot of black therapists who work there as well. Um, And as just a general, like in the mental health field, there's not a lot of Asian therapists. So I kind of sit somewhere in between. Um, And I felt like what really burnt me out in CMH was, um, you know, one of the gifts I've received in this lifetime is the gift of confidence and the gift of being very self-assured. I'm not not someone who like apologizes for, um, you know, taking up space in the room. I'm not someone that qualifies my emails with like, I hope you're doing well, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I mean, I do hope people are doing well, but like, you know, I don't feel the need to sort of like say that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think like that sort of confidence is actually really confusing for people in someone that looks like me. I think they expect someone to be very quiet, like very agreeable. There were times when I felt like I wasn't being heard in like group consultations or, you know, um, when I was working with other staff members on a case with a family, like I felt like they were just sort of talking over me and, Mm-hmm. I would, uh, I mean, I wouldn't take that sort of lying down. I would be like, you know, actually like I'm the therapist on this case. And so like what I'm doing, you know, is important. And I, I think that, you know, I have a stake in it, this as well. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, people did not like this. Um, and I think I had, I had to have a, a few talks with my manager. Um, she was sort of really intent on like, you got to be nicer to people when you talk to them and, you know, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you gotta, you know, try to, you know, you got up in the middle of that meeting and you left. And I was like, because at that point I had for half a dozen times, I had tried to say to people, like, I don't f- hear, like, I don't feel like you're hearing me, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think like I burnt out of that setting just because I was like, you know, on top of working with really high acuity cases that you see in CMH that are already tough. I'm feeling like every day I'm walking into work and it is a battle for me to even be seen the way that I am by by everyone around me. Um, And then the sort of, I guess, nail in the coffin was I had, I was working with a a good friend in CMH and she left her position. And then after she left, I was like, well, there's no reason (laughs) for me to stay here at all. Um, So then, yeah, I, that was when I really felt it. I was like, every day I was going to work just felt like a slog. Like I was like, no one here is benefiting from this. Like my kids, my families that I'm working with can probably tell that I hate it here. (laughs) I'm like, I need to leave. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, like on top of all of those sort of systemic problems with like CMH, like high caseloads, low support, um, you know, on being under-resourced, all of that, like throw some like racism, sexism, misogyny on top of that. And Mm -hmm. I think that really like was my first sort of formidable experience being like, wow, this burnout thing is, is real despite all of my best attempts to not have it be a thing. Yeah. Well, and that also speaks to, um, I mean, I, I feel like I need to qualify this statement because I'm a therapist. I'm like, <laughs> well, but I know not, I know not every organization is like this. However, an overwhelming um, uh, amount of anecdotal evidence, I suppose, that I have. So like things that I've heard from people who work in these types of settings, it goes, it goes along with your experience of like, we are providing a service where we are encouraging people to live up to their authenticity and be their honest selves and take care of themselves and like be well. And we often don't embody that in the work that we do as professionals. And so like in your story, they were expecting something of you. They expected something different from you. And when you showed up as your authentic self, you got, you got pushed out maybe not like forcefully, but they didn't create a system that like allowed you to be who you were, despite who they thought you were, mm-hmm. which is exactly. just as shitty. <laughs> That's very <laughs> shitty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I know that we talked prior to this call too. And I, I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing up your identities, mm-hmm. um, especially for listeners, right? Cause they can't see the video. They can't see any of this. Um, how, how else do you feel like your, your personal identities, all of them, how have they played into your experience of burnout over time? Yeah, definitely a, a great question. And I feel like, do you have like five hours to hear, to hear me <laughs> right. talk about this? Right. Um, because this is, um, you know, largely at the forefront of, yeah, how I conceptualize my own work and my own work with my clients is very identity-based. Um, and I think I've interacted in pretty unique ways with burnout because of this. Um, so I, d- I sort of alluded to this in my uh, previous story, um, but I will just sort of spell it out for people. Like, mm-hmm. I think we have assumptions of feminine presenting East Asian women as being people who are going to be largely quiet, um, mm-hmm. who are going to like work hard, um, but maybe do it quietly. Maybe like also they're going to be good at what they're doing, um, but for sure do it quietly, for sure be agreeable. Um, you know, not really question the status quo, kind of just, I think sometimes I also hear like an air of like gratitude of like, you should just be grateful that you're here and like, whatever, um, you know, if, uh, I'm sure there will be some people familiar with like the model minority myth. And if not, um, I'm not going to kind of go into a history lesson here, but you know, that's, I think also something that really shows up, um, in my sort of feelings of, of my work and, mm-hmm. and how sort of people perceive me. Um, I've worked in a variety of settings before. So CMH is the first one. And then I've did a, a really large pivot into research. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working for a group practice and then I kind of pivoted again to work in a hospital, like an outpatient clinic hospital setting. And then I pivoted again to group practice and now I'm in solo practice. Um, And I would say like my experience of burnout uh, has really been in those settings where um, I I don't know how to 
like say this nicely, but the, the settings that are large that don't necessarily prioritize like diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm always aware of like who I am and um, the things that are really valuable and important to me. And I think sometimes, uh, sometimes folks have a hard time sort of seeing that really visibly because they're expecting a certain person, you know, when they meet me, because I'm a little hard to position, um, even, I mean, I shouldn't be, um, but uh, I'm a little hard to position, I think sometimes, especially when we think about sort of like currently what's going on uh, over the past several years with racial tensions in the United States. So I'm not white, I'm also not black. Um, I am of a group that is closer to whiteness, so I'm in greater proximity to it. Um, I still experience racism, I still experience um, sort of that uh, intersectional brand of misogyny that's leveled against uh, feminine presenting um, Asian people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think all of that combined sort of leads me into burnout a lot, just because I am consciously thinking like I'm having to battle things like people don't like when you're outspoken, you know, people actually may not even want me to be confident. I think a lot of how we read feminine presenting people are, they're supposed to be like super apologetic for even like being in that space. Like they're supposed to walk in and just like start apologizing or something. Right. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry for attending this meeting that I'm supposed to be at, or like, yeah. oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to say something to correct you, even though I know I'm like 1000% right here, right. you know, like they're not supposed to take up space. Um, and I think for me, like, and this is just my opinion and other therapists are, I know have different experiences for me. Burnout has never been the content of my work with my clients. I hear some really difficult stuff. I hold space for their, their stories and their narratives and who they are. Um, and it's hard. Um, but the content of my sessions, with my clients is not what gets me. Uh, what really gets me is sort of the context, the context uh, behind the work, the context is sort of knowing like, um, you know, great example of this is uh, earlier this year, um, I think it's back in March, when there were the murders of the um, Atlanta women. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was a piece of uh, something happening in our social environment that really got me that week that yeah. and for the several weeks after that and knowing like, I know this is something that's close to my identity. This is close to the identity of a lot of my clients too. How do I hold space for myself? How do I hold space for them, the content of what they're saying to me is not necessarily new because I share a lot of the same feelings and concerns and rage and mm -hmm. you know grief that they're having. Um, but you know, outside of that, something that really impacted me was like what, seemingly like why does no one else care about this? Like right. I don't know. I step outside of like the Asian American Pacific Islander community and. I, people don't seem not to really understand the significance. Um, and I think organizationally, that's been my experience as well. People, um, I've had supervisors, managers, colleagues who kind of can't position me well. They can't sort of see me clearly and, and for who I am, they sort of just see like what I think is a stereotype. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, like that's been the hardest part of working for organizations is like that burnout does not come from my work with clients or patients. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, it really comes from feeling like I have to watch what I'm saying. I have to show up a certain way. That's not how I want to show up. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time when I worked at a previous setting where I actually stopped talking to people verbally, like colleagues and, and supervisors, because I didn't, 
I felt like my words were being used against me. So anytime yeah. I was going to correspond with them, I wrote it in an email. So like people could see the words that I was using, you right. know, and that stuff, it wears you down. Oh my gosh. Know? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Well that, I mean, you're already doing a job that is emotionally and psychologically intensive. Um, and I mean, I would agree with you, like the contents of the discussions that I have with clients, while they can be difficult and they can stick around, like that's, that is a separate, that's a separate thing for me. Um, but when it becomes tied into burnout, that's where managing all that at the same time gets hard. And like, it sounds like what you were doing is you were already managing a lot emotionally and psychologically with the work that you're doing, the literal work that we're here to do. But then taking on the extra emotional and psychological work of, as you said, trying to present as something that you're not, or like this constant stress of feeling like my, my words or who I am, or any of that could be used against me. Yeah. I mean, that, that just creates like a second job for you at your job. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was, um, oh, I guess a, a small fact that will make this, what I'm about to say make sense is um, I'm also a trained sex therapist and sexuality educator, um, which is not necessarily a super important thing to know right now, but it will make what I'm about to say make more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was going through the training for this, we had a wonderful uh, facilitator for one of the trainings. And one of the things he asked us to think about was, okay, so who's your, who is your like educator persona? Like, are you the educator that is really bubbly and, you know, really, um, just high energy throughout the lesson? Are you that sort of one that's a little quieter that, you know, your students like know that you, you know, your stuff, like you're quiet, cool, and assured. Are you somewhere like in between? Um, it was an interesting question posed at the time and I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, luckily, uh, someone else who was there, um, in that training, uh, spoke up and said something along the lines of, Hey, so this is really hard for me. Um, it's really hard for me because I actually already feel like when I move throughout the day, like I'm already putting on a persona, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not really who I am. Um, and so now you're asking me to think about adding another persona to that. Um, and, um, I really, I have a lot of gratitude, um, to the person who said that out loud, um, because, um, I heard it and it really resonated with me. Like, wow, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you're right. (laughs) Like I am already feeling most of the time, like, you know, I am, operating under someone who is not me. Um, and that's not necessarily by choice. I think some people do that by choice and that's totally fine. Um, I trust they've made the right decision for them. Um, but some people do it not by choice out of like a necessity to survive. Right. And so I heard that and I, it really just clicked with me. Um, and that was at a time when I, uh, was not working in my own solo practice. So, you know, now, um, I don't do that anymore. I, I do yeah. feel, you know, like I can, um, be really authentically who I am. Um, but yeah, at the time I just, those words were just so significant to me. Like, yeah, it mm-hmm. is a persona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does suck. Wow. Yeah. 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 Cause that like those personas take so much energy to think of build, try to hold up while you're, while you're in that persona space. Um, 
which is why like when I encounter folks like you and other folks in, you know, in social media spheres or just out and about who, I don't know, like, and maybe this sounds kind of shitty to say, but sometimes like you can get the sense when they are showing up really as who they are versus some sort of persona that they're putting on. And I mean, I agree with you, right? Like if somebody finds that having a persona is the way that they do their best work and that is what is beneficial for them and their clients, then yes, I trust that. Um, and at the same time, like as I've developed as, as a therapist, I'm like, I do not feel like I do good work when I'm trying to show up as like, like wearing business casual clothes to me feels like I would be mm. wearing just, no, like I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's a small example, but just also like how you, how you speak to people, how you relate to them. Do you, do you use humor? Um, can you allow yourself to be human around the folks that you're, you're spending most of your time with? Um, and I think that more and more like people in our field are considering what it means to be that, to be more of yourself than somebody else as you're working with clients, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I know we've uh, sort of interacted on Instagram sort of back and forth through comments on our posts or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons why I started actually listening to your podcast um, was because you had made a post about the idea of like, have you ever thought about leaving the mental health field? And if so, that is a okay. And let's think about that. Um, so like if any, and the off chance that any of my clients are listening to this, like, no, I'm not thinking about <laughs> leaving it right now. Um, I, you know, I think this work is hard. I think, um, like I said, right at the top, uh, burnout is inevitable, even despite sort of my efforts to best set up my practice that resonates, you know, with the values that I have that you know, so I can practice in a way that I want to practice, like, despite all of that, like mm-hmm. systemically, yes, there are still things that really get to me, um, that will burn me out. Insurance is a, a great and terrible example of this at the same time. Um, yeah. Uh, do I like chasing down insurance claims? No, those are not things, um, that provide security and safety, you know, when mm-hmm. practicing. Um, so I do, you know, try to show up, um, in a really meaningful way. And anyway, um, so when, you know, I saw that post that you made about like, you know, leaving the field of mental health, I was like, you know, yeah, like this is a really good time to sort of think about how I am showing up for my clients. Um, I don't think any of them would dispute the fact that I try to really dispel the idea with them that I am some perfect person who's mm-hmm. got this all figured out that I'm somehow immune to like the stresses of COVID and, you know, racism and whatever. I really try to just shatter any <laughs> illusion that they might have, um, that I'm a person who's got it figured out. Um, I will openly talk to them about the idea of like, you know, I'm, I'm just really glad that you showed up today. I know it seems like, like, I hope you don't interpret it as like some like condescending or like patronizing thing for me to say to you, but like, I'm just really glad you're here because it was hard for me to get here too. Sometimes it's hard for me to get here. Sometimes like I do sort of, 
you know, I'll be lying on my couch sort of staring up at my ceiling, uh, mm-hmm. falling into a little bit of existential dread. Right. Um, so like I'm, yeah, you showed up and that's really cool because it's really easy not to, mm-hmm. um, and being able to sort of talk more openly and feel more authentic. I think with my clients about like, here's how I'm positioned in the world. Like there are things that you can obviously see about me from my appearance. There are things that I'll share with you about, you know, identities that you can't see that may help us in our work together. Um, And like, you know, it's important for me that they can sort of see those authentic parts. And honestly, I do think it's made me a lot better of a therapist. Like I I remember times when I didn't do that and I look Mm -hmm. back and kind of cringe. And so I think it's maybe better. Yeah. Well, I mean, and to that extent, like, unless you, unless you were a provider who went to um, a graduate program that is a lot more focused on the, um, you know, the social justice aspect and, you know, that is what we might call more progressive, like a lot of institutions teach that like blank slate of the therapist, like you don't insert yourself. Um, you, you are the blank slate upon which the client will reflect all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, again, like, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And I'm sure that there are plenty of therapists who find a lot of success in removing either parts of themselves or, you know, larger parts of themselves to whatever extent they can so that the client has that space. And that does not mean that that is like the best way of doing it. Um, I mean, I, I, I've been in that space too, where it's like, I felt like I had to be kind of buttoned up and just very like quiet and non-reflective. Like I, we were kind of taught the value of reflecting how we feel in the moment, but that's actually something that I've learned later on outside of school, outside of internship mm-hmm. to be like, here's how I'm feeling in reaction to what you just said. Um, and I have found that when I'm open in those kinds of ways, clients respond really well to that. They're like, wow, my therapist is a human who is responding to me in a human way. And we can actually talk about it rather than it being this like typical pattern of, you know, volatility or withdrawal or whatever it might be. So yeah, I I appreciate that model quite a bit, being able to show up as yourself instead of somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Megan, that's a really uh, important point I think to bring up. Um, if, if you've ever like looked at my Instagram, one of the things I really try to do is, um, keep in mind, like I'm attacking systems Mm -hmm. on my Instagram. Sometimes individuals read it and they feel attacked and that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, if that happens, I think that's a good, uh, invitation to sort of like, you know, look inside and see why you felt so attacked by that. Um, I, I think it's important to be actually really kind. There's a quote that I saw a while back. Um, like it's like, be kind with the individuals, be ruthless with systems. And I, oh my gosh, I don't know who it's attributed to. Um, but I really take that to heart. You know, I agree with what you're saying. I absolutely understand any therapist who is like buttoned up blank slady. Um, I get that because on a level, it's really hard to not be like that. Like it's really hard to take a, a risk um, and to go against everything that you've been taught and to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am mm-hmm. going to give my clients more of a view of who I am. And I am going to have to deal with the fallout of however that impacts my relationship with my clients. And that is not something that you were ever taught <laughs> um, in 
graduate school or anything. Um, so I, I hear you like any therapist who decides like, you know what, I need the blank slate to like protect myself from having to deal with something that I maybe don't know how to manage yet, or I maybe don't know, you know, what to do about. I hear that. Um, if you're listening and that's you, um, what I will say is we work in a system that really highly incentivizes that mm -hmm. and also punishes uh, therapists that do decide that they want to practice in a different way. So mm -hmm. um, there, if you talk to any therapist, I think uh, at the like top of their list of their fears is like fear of losing my license, fear of being sued, you know, like, and all these things that we know happen, yeah. but don't, um, you know, don't happen maybe as much as like we think that they happen, but still do happen. And still, you know, warrant some fear around yeah. we live, uh, we're working in a really fear driven system. You know, we're afraid of not meeting productivity. We're afraid of, um, you know, getting sued. We're afraid of losing our license. Like therapists as a whole, we're practicing under fear right mm -hmm. now. You know, mm -hmm. that's our current system. We're practicing under capitalism and fear. And, you know, that is, if that's what we're practicing under, yes, I totally understand why it's so hard for some therapists to show up, you know, more authentically or to open up a little because some people have families. Some people yep. are responsible for caring for other people. Some people, you know, don't have access to a lot of capital and they need their job and they need to do it a certain way to feel good about themselves and to feel safe and protected. That's not an individual failing. That's a system failing, something that we need to really address and, and you know, reimagine. Um, but, you know, th this is not sort of a disparagement of, of therapists who decide to practice in any certain way, because we're all just dealing with a system that's just really messed up. And that's yeah. really hard to practice under. A hundred percent. Yeah. And to what you're speaking of, like operating under fear, <clears throat> um, in starting this podcast, even like I experienced a lot of fear around those very same things, like, okay, so I, I feel like personally kind of in a even more vulnerable state because I am associate level. I'm still under supervision. And here I am like, Hey everybody, I don't even have my full independent license yet. And like, let's talk about how fucked up the system is cool. <laughs> and like, Hey everybody, how about you also come and talk to me about it? So why don't you expose yourself? Like, I'm not going to make anybody do that obviously, but honoring the fact that to even show up in this space and talk with quite honestly, I have no control over the audience who listens to this. It could be just other therapists. It could be clients. It could be whoever, right? So like I operate operating under a system of fear and knowing all those things and still doing it. Like I, I appreciate everybody who has come on here and been willing to do that. And I 100% understand folks who are like, I dig the podcast. This is important, but I'm staying away from this because I can't, I can't insert myself into that conversation. It doesn't feel safe to me. Mm -hmm. Um, which is like, <laughs> it's like a whole cycle. Cause that's the whole reason I want to have this show in the first place is to make that less of an unsafe thing to talk about in general within the system. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it just like, it feels like it always goes in circles. Cause like, <sighs> you're right. The system is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't want to be too doom and gloom about it because obviously we're still here like knowing all this about the system, we're still deciding to be a part of it. So, you know, for the most part, that tells me that 
you know, people like you, people like me, <clears throat> we're still finding hopefully some value in doing this work. So, you know, I'm wondering what thoughts do you have about, even though it's not specifically an individual problem, like how have you found ways to, to thrive either in the profession or outside of it, knowing what's going on with the systems around you? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a great question. Yes. So um, I've kind of, I feel a little impostery about this, um, but I'm going to try to push through that um, because I think this is important. So I've started to grow into identifying as an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's uh, the impostery part comes with, I would love to see the mental health industrial complex end, um, fully knowing that would put myself out of a job, right? <laughs> fully knowing that, that like, right. you know, if uh, we could sort of radically put community care uh, systems into place, if we could sort of radically reimagine like almost every part of our constructed systems right now, if those things moved in a way that really sought to support people and community, you know, the need for like a mental health therapist would go away essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, because you would feel like you had community supports and community-based organizations um, and other just people in your life that could help you. Also, I have a firm belief that like at 90 seven percent of the people that go to therapy don't actually need it they just need more money you know if we gave them just more money month, know, right? uh, they wouldn't need to talk to us at all um, yeah, yeah. so I will always advocate for that as well um, but I've been growing into this uh, identity as an abolitionist because I'm you know have been feeling like um, there are so many ways in which the world is on fire right now there are so many ways in which systems are failing um, myself my clients almost everyone at this point um, and it's a lot to take in, you know, it's a, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to continue to show up and sort of confront those things. Um, one of the ways I really try to sort of ward off the burnout that comes with having not of those great existential problems is really trying to focus in on, you know, what my lane is here. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I, a mental health therapist in the Midwest, I am not going to go out and like, you know, um, find, you know, some cure for all the systems that plague us in the ways that they plague us. Um, that's not my role. Uh, that's not, I think, sort of a good use of my gifts that I've been given in this lifetime. You know, I try to be very narrowly focused. Um, we don't need one person that's going to do everything. We need several people that are good at a couple or one thing. And mm-hmm. we need several people who are really good at what they do working together um, to help sort of be able reimagine what these systems look like. I am very good at what I do. I'm a very good therapist. Um, You know, I have sort of acknowledged that in this lifetime, as I know it, um, that is what I'm giving to people. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that I'm like ignoring all the other bad stuff that's outside of my control. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that like, I don't ever comment on things that are not mental health. Um, It just means that I know that like my energy is useful in the mental health space with my clients Mm one-on-one. The need for like group organizing or, you know, um, more macro interventions, those are so important as well. Um, That's just not where my gifts lie right now. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. And I think there was a time when I was really beating myself up over that. Like, I felt like um, because of my social identities, I'm like, I'm a person, you know, with class privilege, but also with the understanding of like racism and how that sort of intersects with like, um, you know, 
gender identity and, and whatever. And so um, I felt like I was like, I am someone with class privilege, which allows me to help bring equity to other people. Kind of. I also, you know, am knowledgeable about like racism and patriarchy and whatever and intersectional feminism. And so like, because I'm positioned in this way, like, I really feel like I need to be doing more, you know, I need mm -hmm. to be um, donating more, giving more of my time or like researching more of these things or like joining more community-based organizations. Um, and that's just not my lane right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. It's not my lane to be in. It's a lane that would burn me out faster <laughs> than I need to. Um, my lane, my world is small right now. You know, mm -hmm. it really is. And that's uh, pretty deliberate um, to keep myself from burning out, you yeah. know, burning out in the lane that I need to be in, which is, you know, being a mental health therapist. My world is small and maybe that won't be OK, you know, in the future. Um, right now, it's OK, though. It's small. Mm -hmm. I wake up, you know, I, I do my sessions with my clients. I you know hang out with my partner. I experience joy um, outside of my work. I experience joy inside of my work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't try necessarily to do anything else right. um, that might bring me, you know, struggle or that might make me feel badly about myself. It's mm -hmm. just not my lane right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I leave the door open, like maybe later it mm -hmm. might be, um, but right now it's not, and that's okay. And I really um, lean into the idea of like, I have, I, do often extend forgiveness to myself for, you know, feeling that way for caring mm -hmm. so deeply about other things. And also like, you know, forgiveness for myself that like, maybe there was a time when I didn't know how to really rein that in, how to really, and I was sort of running myself around in circles and I've extended forgiveness to myself of like, it's okay yeah. that you cared that much. Like, it's okay that you did that. You learned yeah. something from it. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where I'm at right now. Absolutely. And I'm like, I'm smiling so much because like, I'm feeling positively activated by that because I feel like I, I'm in that space a little bit, like feeling drawn toward multiple different big things. And like, this show is, is part of that for me where I'm like, I want to get something bigger out there. Um, mm -hmm. and for right now, this show is positively filling me up and I've thought to myself, like, what happens if I get burnt out doing a show about burnout? Like what, like, is that going to be okay? Um, and like you said, maybe kind of like pre forgiving myself, like if there ever comes a time where the work that I'm doing in working with clients or doing this show or whatever else comes up, like if there comes a time where that's just not if it's burning me out more than helping me <clears throat> learning to be okay with that and like learning to say, it's okay for me to set this down for a while or even maybe potentially forever. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I can, I can stay in my lane and keep my side of the street clean, so to speak. Absolutely. Yes. And if there ever, you know, was a time when you decided that the show just wasn't it for you anymore, you know, I'd support that hundred you know, <laughs> percent. Yeah. It's kind of like a, I, I was talking to my fiance about it the other night and I was like, no, there's a train in the background. We'll just ignore it. Um, <laughs> I was talking with him about like, it'll be my own special kind of schadenfreude when, if, and when I get burned out talking about this with clients or like specializing it in it and then not being able to do it. But I think what you're saying here is it's important for a lot of folks to hear because 
again, a lot of folks in this field, we come to it because we have a lot of passion for making big differences and it can be so easy to feel pulled in like 20 different directions at once and not really not really feeling like we can pull back and say like instead of going super broad with a lot of things i'm going to go deep with maybe one or two things that i can do really well yes exactly yeah yeah and and i mean i'm 100% saying that from personal experience too <laughs> like i'm trying to find the things that i can go deep with and learn to be okay with letting those other things go. Yes. Yeah. I, I, this is reminding me of an episode that I listened to earlier. I'm, I'm totally forgetting her name. I think her name is like Kara. Um, yeah. she was talking about the idea of like, you don't have to, therapists want to get certified in a lot of stuff. And yeah. you just like, don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And I heard that. And I literally like, it was like, yes, like absolutely. <laughs> no, you don't. I know like therapists, I know like EMDR is really hot right now. You want to get certified in that. Like, I think it's really useful to some clients. Uh, there's like all these new exciting things to get certified in. You don't have to, you don't even have to train in it. If you don't want to, your, your offerings, what you have right now are really valuable to mm-hmm. clients, um, as you are. Um, and some of your offerings might not be valuable to some clients and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to continue to train, uh, and, you know, sink your time, your money, you know, your energy into that if you don't want to. Um, I am also a clinical supervisor. Um, so I'm a fully licensed uh, mental health professional. So I supervise um, in the state of Michigan. I think our licensure structure is like a little bit different than other states. Um, like we, I heard you uh, name yourself as like an associate. Um, here we call them limited license folks. Um, so I supervise limited license folks as well. Um, and most of, I would say all, yes, all of the folks that I've supervised have been therapists of color. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very passionate about, you know, supporting other therapists of color. And that's one of the things that I think shows up for them in their work is the idea of like, I need to cast a wide net. Like I need to have a breadth of things that I know about. I need to have like be a generalist with just like amazing, you know, an amazing span of knowledge. And I hear that. And I know where that comes from. I know that comes from a place of, of like feeling that you've got to overcome racism against you. Essentially. Like, mm-hmm. I know that that comes from a place of like, I will be looked at, I'm starting as less than behind other people. So I really need to know my stuff really well. I need to give no question to people that I absolutely know what I'm doing. Um, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes up with people, especially there, um, mm-hmm. especially with uh, therapists of color, BIPOC therapists. Um, there comes a lot of imposter syndrome around like, you know, like I talked about before, we're not even seen visibly sometimes. Like our work really isn't sometimes picked up on um, mm-hmm. by like white clients, for example. Um, so like it's a need to be seen visibly. It's also that sort of thought of society is telling me that I'm not good, you know, that plays into imposter syndrome a lot. Um, so one of the things I really, when I hear through my supervisees, um, when I hear them talk about the need to read more, they're always like, can you send me some articles on this? Do you have resources for this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I do. Um, I'm probably not going to send them to you. Um, because can, and can we talk about that? Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of what your value to your clients, um, is, is your ability to sit with them 
and understand them and hold space for them Mm -hmm. and be with them. Um, a lot, we know a lot of BIPOC clients seek BIPOC therapists. Um, and for those relationships, you know, I've never had a, a client of color come at me with like questions about my credentials or, um, what modalities do you know? What certifications do you have? Really, they don't. Um, it's my experience only, I guess, that they don't necessarily care too much about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I hear, you know, my trainees really being bent out of shape over, I need more knowledge. I need to do more. Can you give me books? Do you have resources? I'm like, yeah, I can. But also like, that's not going to make this feeling of I'm incompetent. Like that's not going to make it go away. Unfortunately, that's something that we're going to have to learn to up your tolerance to, because that's just being a person of color, you know, in, in this field, that's just, you know, a a feeling that I still have as well. That feeling of like, I need to be 1000 times more perfect, uh, than any other white therapist. Um, you know, I think, uh, I've worked in settings where my white colleagues have been continuously forgiven over their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the first time I make one, I'm punished. Mm-hmm. So it's that feeling. I know where it comes from. Um, and, you know, I don't think that you necessarily have to be a BIPOC therapist to feel that like pull to want to learn more, um, but it especially comes up and produces a lot of burnout in early stage BIPOC therapists. Cause yeah. they're like, cool. I was excited to do this. I was excited to be here and be a cool new therapist. And now I'm finding out all the ways in which the system is really hard, the ways in which I feel like I'm failing, the ways in which I'm perceived by other therapists and other clients. And all of it is so hard. Um, so I, you know, I try as a supervisor really hard. Um, I am like, (laughs) triggered by the question uh, that I had gotten from supervisors around like, well, what are you doing in your self-care? Like, what are you doing to prevent that? I am so triggered by that question. So I do not give that question to my supervisees. I instead try to frame it as like, hey, what can I do here or outside of here to, Mm -hmm. to help you with these feelings? to really help you, you know, I don't mention the word burnout. I don't mention the word self-care. Um, I try to make myself available to, you know, what they need from me in like a space of a clinical supervisor role, but also what they need from me in a space of, I'm also another BIPOC professional in this system. And so mm-hmm. like, what do you need from me? Like trying to, you know, bring up the idea of like community care almost like, yeah. what do you need from me in the space outside of the space? What can I do to help yeah. with these feelings that are coming up right now? Um, and so, I, you know, I think people lean in on the, like, I need to know more stuff and I'll feel better. Uh, I, I'm not convinced by that though. I'm really mm. not. I'm not either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. A, that, that mentality does seem to be very prevalent, as you said, among most early career therapists, but as you're saying, like the, the BIPOC community, they do have um, so much, so much more to overcome in terms of being seen and being visible in their competence. Um, and so it's, it's understandable that your supervisees would come and say like, if only I have more education, more knowledge, more training, more certification, more X, Y, and Z, like then I'll be seen as competent, even though it's like, no, you are, you are. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I know for myself personally, I've really gotten caught up in that mentality of like, I need to search up all these trainings and get all these certifications and like, just have that listed on my my website and say that I I have all this. And then people will be like, cool, you can give me therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, 
so I, I, I like that you're, you're very intentional about that with your supervisees around like, yes, I have resources and I'm not just going to automatically give them to you because that's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And also just the, um, what's your self-care plan question. Also, like I've had many a supervisor ask me that and I'm like, that's not the problem. <laughs> like that's <laughs> me, me going to a yoga class tonight is not going to make all of this stuff over here, like necessarily easier to handle. So mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you are a supervisor who has asked that question to your supervisee, uh, you better also have a plan to support your supervisee (laughs) in their self-care. And that plan better include things like, you know, advocating for a higher wage for, you know, that therapist or advocating for a cap on clients that they're going to accept under their caseload or helping them to hold uh, boundaries with their work hours or helping them to, you know, um, advocate for themselves to take like vacations, to take time off, you know, like as a supervisor, like we sort of do this thing sometimes with like, oh, self-care is your problem. Like mm-hmm. take more bubble baths, do more yoga. <laughs> like don't take your work laptop home with you, uh, which is something I heard at CMH all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it's like cruel because it's like, okay, but like, I have to take my work laptop home with me because like, you don't give me any time to do notes. And then you'll also like put me on a corrective action plan if my notes aren't done at time. So like, when do you expect me to do that? So it's like exactly. kind of like a double, even more sort of cruel. Uh, but if you're a supervisor, you better have a plan to help mm-hmm. support, you know, your, your supervisees uh, from not burning out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, this show is really great. This podcast is really great because it sort of seeks to get, just talk about it on the open and, and normalize it and get it out there, which is the thing I try to do, um, you know, with my supervisees of like, Hey, it's normal. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> do I love talking to my computer screen for eight hours a day? No, it's normal <laughs> that you don't like this. You went into social work or, you know, if you're in counseling, you went into counseling or psychology, um, probably because you like to be in a room with person with a person doing therapy. Um, that's certainly why I went into it because I liked sharing physical space with someone and working mm-hmm. through, you know, what was going on for them. By this time, we're like 18, 19 months into the pandemic. Uh, we're tired. Um, mm-hmm. It's okay. Like for some of my supervisees, they've actually like never done therapy in person um, yeah. because they, yeah, they, oh, you know, the yeah. start of their graduate training was the pandemic and it was all mm-hmm. virtual. So they're like, oh, like, is it always going to feel like this? I'm like, no, no, like, if really we can go it. back in person, <laughs> it'll not be like this. I'm so sorry that like, this has been your experience. Um, but also supporting them when they say like, I actually, this might not be for me, you know, mm-hmm. this might not be, um, something that I want to continue doing, you know, supporting them and being like, okay, like I hear that. Uh, mm-hmm. There are also times when <laughs> this is not something that I want to keep doing either. Let's like talk about that. Mm-hmm. You have options. You do not have to be stuck here if you don't want to be stuck here. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just supporting them in, you know, taking time off. Um, I had a supervisee who, you know, was on vacation for a week and he was like, well, we can still meet. And I'm like, I mean, like, do you want to, like, I'm here. If you have questions for me, yeah, I want to be a resource to you, yeah. but like, also 
no, (laughs) you need that time off. You absolutely have the freedom to not think at all about your clinical work or your clients or anything, you know? So I would, you know, I'm always challenging individuals to do, you know, to learn more, to unpack more, to be better. And I think this is a challenge that I've issued to many other therapists that are supervisors of like your supervisee, yes, does need you in some ways. Um, but they also need you to tell them that it is okay to feel burnt out. It's actually normal that maybe Mm -hmm. even actually you were expecting this and Mm -hmm. that's no shade on them. Like you were expecting this, not because they're bad at what they do or they failed, but you were expecting this because you're recognizing that they're working really hard in a system that does not like them. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that for myself, um, one of my best supervision experiences uh, was at my first post-grad job. Um, I was sitting with my supervisor and like I had come to him just being like, hey, I just need help figuring out my schedule. Like if you can help me figure out how I can fit more clients in within the guidelines that they've given me, um, here's what it looks like right now. So maybe I meet with a client at 8 a.m. and then I have four hours and then I see another client, like, uh, I'm just trying to figure out how to fit all these sessions in. Cause I, I was working in a program where, um, we were required to see clients at least three hours a week. So three sessions per week, all of those in home. Um, it was a really intensive program. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how to structure my day so that I don't have like, so I can have maybe a Friday that is more of a half day to get paperwork done. And he like, he sat across from me and he was like, this isn't reasonable. Like you're asking for logistical help when this is like, this isn't a reasonable schedule. And I hope you know that this isn't how you should be. You don't have to feel like you should be operating this way. Um, because I, you know, I would talk about how, like I would meet when, whenever clients said they were available, like I will, I will come to you like, Oh, you want a 7 30 PM appointment. Okay, cool. Like I'll be there. And he's like, you, you have a say, you should have a say in your schedule. So you get to dictate the schedule. The clients don't necessarily get to do that for you because if they do, you will, you will burn out. (laughs) You will be exhausted. You will be um, feeling like you can't do this job if you're not setting up those boundaries. So like as a very early, early career clinician, like it was so important for me to hear from a supervisor, like, you get to have some say, even within the confines of the job that you have, like you get to say at least a little bit about when you're going to be available and when you're not. So I agree that like for supervisors, of course there there's, it's all layered. Right. And so like, you may have your own stuff that, that you also need to work through, which is why having consultation is super important and having your own therapist as a therapist is important. And like being in that particular position of power, um, being able to recognize that you can help be um, a helpful guiding light sort of for your your supervisees and kind of helping them understand the, the way that they can be healthy for themselves within systems that don't like them and Mm -hmm. don't necessarily care if they're being healthy for themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's 
when I try in my mind and like try to speak it out loud, like ways to untangle it, there's just like another little tangled ball that shows up over here. And then there's one over here. I'm like, I just, it's so much. <laughs> it, it really, honestly, it really is. And I, I think I've, um, I've racked my brain actually just trying to think about like how, yeah, how to just start untangling all the mess that this is. One of the things that I think I come back to a lot is like, I sort of can see it from both sides. A good example of this is like, yes, I do believe that therapy should be free. It should be a free service, but like therapists can't, we can't be out here providing free services. Like we're not going to do that. Um, I, I hear you clients, like it is too expensive. I, this is like something that's so hard, um, and causes a lot of, uh, stress for a lot of therapists around like, yep, we do think therapy should be more affordable. We also can't individually be the solution to that. I can't, I would love to see all of my clients for free. I want it to be free too, but it can't be in the ways that we make it free to people. You know, when therapists are donating their time, uh, bless them. <laughs> um, yes. Truly, like uh, that is, uh, they're amazing. They, I trust that they're making the decision that's correct for them, that they've looked inside themselves and uh, have decided that they can offer their talents and their skills for free at that time in their life. Um, I can't do that right now. That's not where I'm at. Um, but it is hard to untangle because even this, like before we get into any of the other problematic stuff about the mental health system, like, yeah, even this is something that's really a stumper. I see it both ways. Like mm -hmm. we can't offer services for free. It also shouldn't be as expensive as it is. I know that fee blocks out a ton of people. It blocks them from accessing services with me. I get that. I do make attempts at like a sliding fee scale. And, you know, it's that layer of guilt of like, well, do I really care about um, <laughs> providing accessible services to people if I'm not willing to slide? Do I really care? Um, also knowing like, this is not my problem. Like it is not my problem that we set up private insurance this way, that we, <laughs> this is how someone in charge of some system decided we're going to continue to have people access services through private insurance with high deductibles and high premiums. Like, you know, that's not on an individual to fix. So, mm. I mean, like, you know, burnout, I think it's, it's helpful when you are hearing from colleagues and supervisors, like, you know what, this stuff was just so out of your control to begin with. It is an uphill battle. It will. I've sort of had the acknowledgement that this will probably continue to be an uphill battle in my career for me for however long I'm going to be doing this. That feeling of like, really feel like I should be paid more for the amount of work that I do, but also like that will block some people from accessing. Like, you know, it's just, it's a hard, it's a hard system that we're trying to work with. And that's why I think it's really important to be really kind to individuals. Again, I'm not out here shaming any individual therapists for deciding to either set their fee at like 250 per session or to provide free therapy. Mm -hmm. I trust that that's the choice that you've made that feels right for you right now. I'm not here to shame individuals, I'm really just here to attack the systems that make this really hard for individuals mm -hmm. that make mm -hmm. us feel really guilty about a wonderful thing that we're doing. You know, I will always maintain most of us continue to do this because we really do care. Absolutely. We really do care. We really, we care. clients, we care about you. Um, I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable to know that your therapist, uh, <laughs> 
thinks about you outside of your session, um, oh, yeah. but we really care about you and we mm-hmm. want you uh, to, to find uh, sessions helpful. We want them to be accessible to you. Um, it's just really hard for us. And we, I, I, I'm only going to speak for myself here. I never take this out on clients. I never think it's no. their fault no. at all. If anything, I'm sorry, you're just kind of like collateral along for the <clears throat> ride and our fight against these systems. Um, uh. You know, we're never taking it out on you. We are frustrated. I am frustrated uh, that these systems really have stopped me in the past from practicing in the way that I really want to, to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to do things that will make that better for me um, moving forward. Um, but yeah, burnout, like we need to just stop framing it as you're not taking care of yourself well enough to cope with the vicarious trauma from your clients or, you know, whatever. We need mm-hmm. to frame it as like, we exist in a system where even doing something like picking the fee for your service is so hard. Yeah. And so, so guilt inducing. And so like, and I've also seen in some social spheres, like other therapists shaming other therapists for the fee that they choose. And it's like, I get, I, I get where that comes from this like reaction to a fee, but like, you don't know where that therapist is what needs they have, how much experience, like where they're coming from, that fee is there so that they can provide that best service. And like, this is an area that I have talked with a lot of guests about, and I, I hope we can keep talking about it because honestly, fuck the idea that anybody should have to provide super low fee or free services just because like, not because it's something that you truly want to do, but because like you're guilted into that position of feeling like, well, I should just be happy to be of service and it's going to fuck me over financially, but that's okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not for it. No. At all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like I, I even posted, so I'm part of a few uh, closed uh, therapist groups on Facebook. And I posted recently about a hypothetical pay structure, which is not super hypothetical. Um, like, Hey guys, what's your reaction to this? And even the opinions in this like closed Facebook group for therapists supporting each other was so all over the board. It's like, well, that seems offensively low, or that seems just fine to some people like conceptualizing what an associate level therapist actually is. And I'm like, mm-hmm. we don't even have agreement among ourselves about what what is fair and good for people to be paid to provide this type of work. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Like I just, yeah, it is the whole thing. I have this dream that all therapists will just, will all get together and be like, enough is enough. Like we need more for our work. We're giving so much um, and not in a bad way. I think some people sometimes hear that and they have like a tendency to like want to correct that. And they have a tendency to be like, well, you just shouldn't care as much. Like you shouldn't care about your work as much. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to stop caring about my work. Like, yeah, I'm not going to bleed out over it for sure. I'm not going to like obsess over it or lie awake at night at three in the morning thinking about it. Um, but I'm not going to not care about it. Yeah. No, I don't know. Would you tell your family doctor, like, maybe you shouldn't care so much about this person's illness that they're coming in for and asking for help with? Like, I don't know, figure it out. Like, it's fine. Like, I'm just here because blah, like, no, 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 we're, that's not the solution. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's so okay to care. It's wonderful that, that we do care. We can reimagine 
the mental health system. I really think yeah. it's possible. I really think yeah. it's possible. Um, you know, I'm a big, my Instagram handle is deconstruct feelings. Uh, deconstruct is a word that I use all the time with my yeah. clients. I think it's possible to deconstruct these systems. I think it's possible to reimagine them, uh, to feel better for all of us. Um, but if you're at that place of burnout, I have so much empathy for you. Mm-hmm. I hope you're well. Um, but I also hope you come back and help us to figure out how to, you know, fight against the system. And if yeah. you don't come back, that's totally fine too. <laughs> I get that too, you know, okay. and I would support you in leaving. That's what you needed to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier is like, we can't all do all the things, but like what you and I may not be able to do on that big grand scale. Like there is a person out there, there's a therapist, maybe one of our clients who is really oriented toward being in a place of, of pushing for larger systemic change. And that's where they get revitalized and that's where they feel most fulfilled. And if we can help nurture that by doing what we do best, which is that individual piece, like it's great. Like we can all work together in our own individual, but connected ways. Mm -hmm. I hope I, I feel like it's possible too. And I also agree that like for therapists of our age, like, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm imagining we're probably both part of the millennial generation. Yep. Um, yeah. Like therapists of our age and generation, like it may not be a dream that is fully realized by the time that we are retiring and moving out of the field. But like, my hope is that this is starting something like we, we it's hard. It's hard to imagine just dropping this and going back um, and having future generations of helping professionals just be like, well, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to work myself into the ground and that's just fine. Like, Mm -hmm. I hope that we can really, as a society and community of professionals and beyond, just really focus on that together and help each other through it. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yes. Uh, I really appreciate that point about interconnectedness. Um, And that's just a really beautiful reframe, I think, for people who are burnt out, like, it sometimes feels like it doesn't matter. I get that. Uh, it's sometimes, but it does, you know, it does matter. Um, you are supporting and nurturing your clients that are living their own rich, wonderful lives in their own way. You're supporting them. They know that you're in their corner and that means a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have a therapist. I know he's in my corner. That means yeah. a lot to me, you know, yeah. like it really does. Um, I know that he can't necessarily like fix a lot of what's going on. Um, I know I can't even fix a lot of, (laughs) I can't fix the system. Um, but you know, really like, it's a really beautiful reframe of like, you know, sometimes it feels like we're beating our head against the wall or something, or these systems are so insurmountable, but like the interconnectedness of just being there with your client, letting them know, like, I see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's really fucking cool. Like it's really cool. And I'm here to support you. That's so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. And, um, also, you know, that's not a silver lining enough for some people who will choose to leave this field and that's okay. Um, but that interconnectedness is very important to keep in mind. You know, the model mm-hmm. of private practice is you are an island, you are isolated. Um, and that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah. Um, there's support to be found, I think, especially in, like you said, the millennial generation and even and Gen Z is becoming yeah. old enough to be therapists too. So, yeah, you absolutely. know, uh, there's a lot of support to be found. There's a lot of people willing to give that support. I am one of them. I know you're an, another one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, that interconnectedness, that community care is so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So that feels like a, <laughs> that feels like a very nice, um, nice kind of way to end it. Cause I know that these conversations can, can end up feeling a lot of the time, like, like it is a little bit of a hopeless thing. And I get that because I've, I'm not, I'm not in that space right now, but I've been there. I've been in that space of feeling a little hopeless about it all. And just like, what the hell? Like, this is just, ugh. like nothing's going to change. Um, but yeah, like offering up this idea that it's not you, it's not your individual responsibility to create massive change for crushing systems, but like many, many voices coming together over time consistently across generations, across organizations and systems, like we can make some change. It may not be like pie in the sky during our time in this work, but maybe someday, I mean, we can push it that direction. So yeah, maybe someday. Yeah. Hopefully sooner than, than later, because I mean, I'm not going (laughs) to lie. I would love to benefit from that, but it's okay if I don't like, as long as we can kind of keep moving in that direction down for it. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Cool. Well, um, I know we're a little bit over time, but just usually at the end of these, I like to ask my guests, like if you were to leave the audience with just like a soundbite or something to kind of think about as we end the session, like what is something that you would want folks to know? something that I want folks to know is uh, somewhat of a cliche that I hear a lot in therapist circles. Um, and this goes for therapists and clients alike. So you're not broken. The systems are. And mm-hmm. I truly believe that uh, for almost everyone. Um, the systems make it really hard for us to connect with each other. It makes it really hard to, you know, be honest about this stuff. Um, it makes it so hard to reach out for help, um, even though we're all going through it. We all live under these systems. Um, People wanna help. Um, They wanna help you fight against these systems. People will not blame you uh, if you you need to take a step back or you you need to take time off because you're burnt out. Um, It's not your fault, it's inevitable not a moral feeling. It's not a willpower thing. It is inevitable. Um, so if anything, you know, we need to hold each other in our work. Uh, we need to hold each other as we fight against systems and, you know, we need to also be taking care of individuals, you know, at the same time. Um, but it's not your fault. If you find yourself burnt out, I find, I found myself burnt out at many points in my career. And I've been fortunate enough to be held by so many people throughout those points that I felt burnt out. Um, Mm -hmm. so like, it's okay if you get to that point of burnout, like I said, it's inevitable. Um, but I think, you know, there are people that want to help with that. And as you said, Meg, like hopefully in our lifetimes, we'll see uh, the fruits of that labor. We'll see Mm -hmm. a radical reimagining of systems that will make it so burnout, like is not inevitable. And I think that would be really cool. That would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining today. Um, I know I really enjoyed the conversation and I have no doubt that the listeners will also feel I'm very thankful for what you had to share today. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Meg. I I really appreciate that you're doing this. This is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. 
And I hope that whoever or wherever you are, you can start having more conversations in your circles of support about better ways to support ourselves and to support each other through burnout. If you like today's show, please make sure to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on there to help get the word out. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, I would absolutely love to have you join the Mental Status Patreon community, which is now officially open. When you join Patreon, you'll get access to a supportive community of like-minded mental health professionals, where I will be offering a ton of high-quality, deeper-dive content related to burnout, with everything from patron-exclusive podcast episodes and monthly webinars, to access to the Mental Status Facebook community, Q&A sessions, and more. To join the Patreon community, head on over to patreon.com slash mentalstatuspod and pick the level of support that fits best for you. Again, that is patreon.com slash mentalstatuspod. Thanks so much, y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I will see you again soon.